Welcome back to the uh, Home Bible Study Podcast. We are currently studying in the letter to the Hebrews, and we have made it to chapter 9. Last week, or maybe a couple of weeks ago, actually, we studied, we started in chapter 9, and we went through uh, verses 1 through 14, and we saw the more excellent ministry that was secured by the Lord Jesus. And now we're gonna continue along those lines as the writer goes into greater depths as to what it was that the Lord Jesus accomplished in his death and the meaning, the purpose of it. And that would have been very significant to these Hebrew people as it is to us. Uh, A lot of this for many of us is common knowledge, but, these are great truths that were not so common, commonly understood um, at this time. And there's a lot of confusion as to why the Lord Jesus had to leave. Why did he not uh, establish the kingdom? You know, what was really going on? So the writer here is filling in a lot of those blanks because that was the anticipation of the Hebrews that when the Lord, they didn't know about the, Uh, the Lord coming two times. They only knew of him coming to establish uh, the kingdom and that's what they were expecting. And you can see that throughout the gospels. Um, And that caused a lot of confusion, but um, the Lord Jesus came uh, the first time to establish the church, Uh, the church that was before Uh, this time a mystery and so the Hebrew people had to understand well you know where do we fit in into this new this new thing this new testament that has been uh, given and so here the writer is going to go into a lot of detail about the new testament and really break it down and explain it so that they would understand how it connected to their past and what it meant for their future And their future is our future because at this time, these were the very first members of the church. And here we are um, still awaiting uh, his second coming. So um, there's a a lot to be uh, learned here. So why don't I just go ahead and read the the verses and then we'll get into the study. So starting in in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 4. 15, I'm reading from the King James Version. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promises, the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the tester. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the tester liveth. Whereupon neither the first was dedicated without blood, meaning the first testament. Um, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water, with scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which, which God hath enjoined unto you. 
Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission of sin. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in heaven should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he have often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the age hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Christ was uh, once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time, without sin unto salvation. So there's a lot here, and we're going to try to um, cover this. There's a lot of information here, and I'm going to try to get um, to flesh this out as best I can. So starting with verse 15, it says, in 15, in, in fact, there's a tie, I've kind of broken this down into three sections. Uh, the first section, 15 through 17, is a New Testament. Uh, then verses 18 through 22, it talks about the blood, the blood and life is in the blood. And then verses 23 through, 23 through 28, the type fulfilled. So that will kind of help give us a framework. So let's look at the first uh, part of this, 15 through 17. Verse 15, it says, and for this cause, um, this is directly tied into uh, verse 14, where it says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So, Based on that, verse 15, and for this cause, since we do know that Christ's blood is uh, eternal and able to save to the uttermost, it says, and for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, uh, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So what's being said here is this, that Jesus is the mediator of the New Testament. Now, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, take this opportunity to point out something that may be very difficult for you to receive. It may not. I don't know. That's up to the Lord and how he, uh, has ministered to you to prepare you for this information. And some of you may even know it, but I feel like that it is not common knowledge, but it is so important to the understanding and the rightly dividing of the um, word of God. Now we have the Bible and the Bible has no errors in it. Let me start by saying that. But the Bible was... Um, Basically, uh, man had a part in making the Bible as we have it today. 
And I'm a, a staunch uh, supporter of the fact that there are no errors in the Bible. If you do think there's an error, then it's you that's making the error. And you probably just need to do further study because there is no errors in the Bible. The Lord has been uh, very careful to lead these men uh, in such a way that all of the Bibles has one concise and consistent message. And it all speaks of the Lord Jesus in some way and our relationship to him. But here we have an error that's a man-made error. The Bible is divided into a Old Testament and a New Testament. And if you look at where the New Testament starts, the New Testament, according to the uh, where the, uh, the people who published the Bible uh, and arranged it, because the, the arrangement of the Bible itself is not inspired, but the words definitely are. And the doctrines are. So the arrangement of where these breaks are and the chapters, you know, those that's not necessarily inspired. Um, men make these breaks uh, and put these little headings here based on their understanding and what they thought was a good page break. And I say all that to say this. The New Testament does not start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The New Testament starts with the, the letter of the book of the Acts. Those are the Acts of the church. That is the beginning of the church age. The church began at Pentecost, which was after the Lord's death. So the New Testament begins after he died. So from Pentecost forward, that is the New Testament. Everything be before that is Old Testament doctrine. So a lot of people make the mistake and they take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and they try to apply it to the church and it doesn't apply directly to us. Yes, it applies to us from the standpoint that all the Bible applies to all believers, but you cannot take it out of context because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are Old Testament. That's why you know, when he talks about the Beatitudes, when he talks about the kingdom and the coming of the kingdom and establishing it and the tribulation period, all of that is geared towards an old covenant believer, right? And the promises that were made to Abraham of the land, the seed, and the blessing. The church does not have those promises. The church's promises, like it's been established in this book, are eternal. They're heavenly promises. All of the church age saints have been promised heavenly things. Everything about every letter that's written to the church speaks of heavenly blessings. Nowhere does it talk about the church entering into a kingdom or receiving a land. We're going to be in New Jerusalem, a heavenly kingdom, whereas these Old Testament believers are going to be resurrected to enter into uh, the land into the, the millennial kingdom is very important to keep your doctrine straight that you understand that. So, um, and here the writer is laying that out. He says, for this cause, he, Jesus is the mediator of a new Testament. It says that by means of death. Okay. So 
The New Testament does not start until after the Lord Jesus dies. Before he died, that's Old Testament. So that will help you keep your doctrine straight and not get confused because everybody wants to say, oh, well, all the promises that were made to Israel, well, the church has those now. That's not true. Uh, God is faithful. He is going to deliver on every promise he made to Abraham for the land, the seed, and the blessing. And he's faithful to deliver on the promises he's made for us. And we cannot get those all mixed up. Now, there will be a time after that 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth when they receive that promised uh, kingdom where he will reign. Uh, At the end of that period, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And then... All things will be made one in Christ. Just like we look back to the Hebrew people and how the Lord dealt with them. And it's a lesson for us. When they enter that thousand year um, kingdom, they're going to be looking at the church and how he was faithful to the church and all the things that he did for the church. And it's going to minister to them uh, the way that their past has ministered to us. So it's all part of his plan but you must understand that a testament does not go into place until after one dies when you make a last will and testament that will means nothing until that person dies when they die that will and testament is then executed and it becomes law you know and the same thing is true here with the with the old testament and the new testament so i don't want to um beat that point up but For those of you who have struggled with reconciling uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with the church age, even though there's words in there that'll that'll say that are translated church, ecclesia just means a gathering. So that's a gathering of the people. So uh, that's not necessarily the church that the called out ones. So anyway, hopefully that doesn't muddy the water too much. Hopefully that causes you to go back kind of revisit things, look at it from that perspective and see that the difference that it makes when you understand where the New Testament starts with um, the book of the Acts. And here, this is where the writer is is saying that. He says, says, he's the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament. So he's basically saying that we have transgressed from the beginning, right? And the first testament, there was a way to deal with those transgressions through the blood of bulls and goats and 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 things like that. And they would just cover over those transgressions. They never dealt with them once and for all. But here the Lord Jesus has come and his death, he has dealt with those transgressions from the beginning that happened with Adam all the way to us. And he's dealt with them once and for all for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first Testament. Uh, they, which are called. Okay. So this is important here. They, which are called. So, um, we have to understand that there's a application here as well. They, which were that are called, so not everyone is going to receive this, re- this redemption. It's those who are called. 
those who are called to be members of the church, those who are called Christians, those who are called to be Christians. And it says that they might receive the promise. Well, the way it's written in the Greek is that they should receive, it's a positive, they, that they should receive the promise of, of eternal inheritance. So the death of the Lord Jesus led to the called ones receiving the, the promise of the, inter, the eternal inheritance. So our inheritance is eternal. It's not tied to a land. It's not tied to anything other than the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is eternal. The effects of his death are eternal. The effects of the blood of bulls and goats, temporary. They covered over. But his death has eternal ramifications. And now those who are called, those who are called in Christ, will receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. That's what we have. That's what we've been called to. And these Hebrew believers needed to be reassured of that because they were losing everything. Everything around them was going away. They were losing their family. They were losing their businesses. They were losing their reputation. They lost their culture, everything. So they needed to know that what they had received was far greater than anything that they could have lost. And the same thing is true with us. We are going to lose things. We are going to suffer in this life. The closer you walk with the Lord Jesus, the more difficult life can be, right? That's the way it works. But the trade-off is we have the Lord Jesus. And there's nothing in life that could be so difficult that... Uh, that it could compare to the love, uh, the grace, the kindness of the Lord Jesus. So uh, we can be like Paul and say, I count all things lost to gain Christ. And if you have not come to that point in your Christian walk that Jesus is everything and nothing else matters, compared to him, that you're willing to lose everything to gain him, well, then there's an opportunity for growth because that's where we need to be. That's That should be our mentality. And no, I'm not saying that you have to walk around like a monk and uh, not enjoy the, the life that we have. That's not what I'm saying. But if there's anything that separates you from the Lord Jesus, from time with him, from fellowship, uh, from his word, then those things need to be placed in their uh, proper uh, priority because Jesus should always be the number one thing in our lives, the number one person, the number one relationship. And everything that we do should be filtered through our relationship with the Lord Jesus. So if if whatever you're doing, you, you can't praise the Lord while you're doing it, then that's, that's a good sign you shouldn't be doing it, right? So we have to understand 
that what we have in the Lord Jesus means everything. That's the source of our strength, the source of our wisdom and knowledge, blessing in our lives, the food we eat, the air we breathe, it all comes from him. And we should acknowledge that. And we acknowledge that by praising him uh, and um, set aside, setting aside time to acknowledge and worship him. And so it's very important that we do that. So uh, verse 16, it says, for where a testament is, now he's going to go into a little more detail about the testament. For where a testament is, there also must of necessity be a death of the tester. This is basically what I said. If you have a last will and testament, it doesn't go into effect until the person dies. So until the death happens, then the testament really has no power. There's no, the, the law says that it's, it's just a document until the death of the tester. And that's when all the things in that document become law. Same thing with the Lord Jesus. Uh, for a testament, verse 17, for a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the tester liveth. Verse 18, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. So we see here that um, Jesus became our high priest upon his death. He was not our high priest while he was alive. He was a high priest according to the uh, order of Melchizedek, uh, recognized by God as a high priest, but he did not enter into the high priestly ministry on our behalf for redemption until he died. That is the importance of the literal death of the Lord Jesus. If anybody says, well, he didn't really die, he was just unconscious, and then he woke back up. Well, then if that's the case, then our salvation is based on nothing because um, there must be a death before the New Testament can come into effect, before the church can receive all the blessings and the promise of the eternal inheritance. He had to die. And so he did. So his blood is the reason why we receive blessings. So, and that's what we're going to be looking at next here in verse 18. It says, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. So it's saying that blood was a part of the Old Testament and it was a, played a significant role in the Old Testament, just like the blood of Christ plays a significant role in the New Testament. So all of the Old Testament things that we saw in the law, in the tabernacle, in the articles, um, the furniture and the ark, all of those things were a type of the Lord Jesus. And they spoke about some characteristic of his ministry, of his person, of his deity. It was uh, throughout the entire uh, tabernacle uh, you can see that uh, if you do a study of those articles, uh, the lamps, you know, he's the light of the world. Um, the, the Ark of the Covenant, there was two cherubim that looked down on her with their wings shadowing the mercy seat. And we know from uh, Revelation that that's uh, the throne room of God. That's what it looked. There's 
there's angels around him that proclaim his holiness constantly. So what we saw or what the Hebrew people saw in those um, instruments, uh, those uh, pieces of furniture, the way that the tabernacle was set up with the holy place and the holy of holies, that was a pattern or a shadow or a, a picture of what heaven looks like and what heaven is like. And so God was in those things teaching the Hebrew people about his righteousness, his holiness, uh, his, his, his exalted nature. And now we get to see the fulfillment, fulfillment of that in the Lord Jesus. We have that opportunity to see that. So that's all of those things uh, were given to them, but not without the shedding of blood. Now, the shedding of blood as a principle of the remission of sin has been um, throughout the Bible from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned, they decided to put fig leaves over themselves. You know, they thought, well, I'll just cover it up and that'll be fine. The problem with that is, is it never dealt with their conscience. They were still very conscious of the fact that they were sinners and they they saw each other in a way that was they could tell was different, you know, because sin had taken hold of them, of their consciousness and their minds. And so they were afraid that sin separated them from God, because when the Lord called out to him, uh, Adam said he was afraid. He said, I heard you and I was afraid uh, before that. He was not afraid. He had fellowship and a close relationship with God. Not, I wouldn't say an intimate relationship, but very close. They, they spoke to one another. They communicated. Uh, but sin now has separated them and they've covered themselves with fig leaves. But when the Lord dealt with that sin issue, there was a shedding of blood. That was the only way that it could be dealt with. And why the shedding of blood? Why is blood so important? Because the life of any animal, any being is in the blood, right? And a life must be taken. Sin demands the end of life. That is the demand that sin makes because of the holiness of God, right? He can't just say, oh, well, you know, you made a mistake. No, there must be a judgment. His holiness demands that a judgment happens. And so how did that take place with Adam and Eve? Where was that shedding of blood? Well, it says that he placed animal skins on them. And you can't get the skin off of animals without shedding some blood. So those animals pay the penalty or the price that Adam and Eve should have paid. Right? Those animals and the shedding of their blood were paid the the price for sin that Adam and Eve should have paid. But the but the animals of the the blood of animals cannot take away sin. That's the point here. It can only cover it over, right? Because the righteousness of God is executed on those animals and the blood is shed and that only covered over sin. It never dealt with sin once and for all for eternity.
right? Because Adam and Eve would continue to sin even after the incident in the garden. So sin has to be dealt with. And the way that it's dealt with is through the shedding of blood. And that's what we see here. So it says, uh, the, uh, whereupon neither, in verse 18, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. In verse 19, for when Moses has spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, and this is covered in Exodus, um, when he has spoken all of every precept, that's all the, the law that he was given, and uh, he spoke to the people, to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and with scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book of the law and all the people. So this was a very specific um, sacrifice that uh, had to be made that was uh, given to the, the people and given to Moses and he had to carry out carry it out in a very specific way. And it was spoke, this particular sacrifice, and they had several sacrifices, but this particular one spoke of the redemption of the people as they entered into a relationship with God and they promised, they said, you know, all the things in the law you tell us to do, we will do. And they entered into this relationship and it was, there was blood involved. Because there is no redemption without the shedding of blood, right? And there's the, the significance of the blood was the, was the message, right? That was the message that was God was ministering to these people is that blood plays a significant role because sin is present. And his righteousness demands that sin be dealt with. In verse 20, saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. So, you know, that's what Moses told them as he sprinkled the blood on them and said, you know, the consequence of disobeying God, the consequence of sin is dead. And this blood is a... Uh, uh, the, the 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 sign of that the significance of the blood is in the fact that there was a separation of sin between um, the people and God and that they're entering into this this covenant relationship that's based on this blood so um, this is very significant verse 21 moreover he sprinkled with the with blood both the tabernacle, all the vessels of the ministry, verse 22, and almost all things are by law, by law purged with blood and without shedding of blood is no remission. So the point of the blood here is significant, right? That apart from the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sin. That is why you see in every sacrifice Every one of the sacrifices, there had to be an animal, a specific animal for each sacrifice uh, that had to be killed. And they would take that animal up to the uh, priest at the right before the brazen altar, and they would put their hand on that animal's head to identify themselves with the animal. 
and then the priest would cut the animal's throat and the blood ran into a bowl. And uh, that blood, as it ran out of the life, ran out of that animal, that should have been, that's that person saying, that should be me. I know because of my sin, I should be receiving that punishment. But God in his grace and mercy is saying, I'm going to cover over that. But my righteousness demands that blood be shed. And so that's that's the principle that's being established here is that without um, almost all things by the law are purged with blood and without shedding of blood is no remission. So throughout the law, we see that over and over in the sacrifices in verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the things that they saw, the, the law, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the um, all of the, the table of showbread, the lampstands, all these things were a picture of the Lord Jesus and his ministry on behalf of uh, mankind and those who are called out. And over and over, we see that these things were a type of the Lord Jesus to set the type, to make people to see that they're just, you know, a shadow of the things that come. Even the, the tabernacle um, and the way it was set up, with the holy place and the holy of holies, this was to kind of reflect what it's like in heaven, where there's a you know an outer court and then there's the the throne room of God, and and how that there's a separation between God and man, and only the priests were allowed to minister, and then only one priest could go into the holy of holies once a year. So all of that was to set the tone and paint the picture of the fact that God and man were still separated and that sin had separated us from God and that the only way that sin could be dealt with and that we could enter into this fellowship and this close relationship with God is through the shedding of blood, right? Very important. That's this being established over and over. And when you read through Exodus, you see it over and over again. So it says it was necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. So these are just a pattern of the things that are in heaven. But the heavenly things themselves, now that's where we are now. We are dealing with the heavenly things. We're, we're beyond the pattern of things. The pattern of things, that's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament relationship. The New Testament, now we have heavenly things. So now we've gone from earthly man-made tabernacles to heavenly things. We've been transferred from an old relationship that really didn't, um, it really wasn't, it's very close. It was still afar off. Now we've been moved in Christ to the most intimate place you can be. We are one with the Lord Jesus. We're one with each other. We are one with God through Christ. So this is what he's accomplished for us. That's why I said at the beginning, we have promises that are heavenly. This letter over and over talks about 
our heavenly blessings. And that's what we have now. Um, that's what he has accomplished on our, on our behalf. Because heavenly things themselves needed to be, um, needed to be secured through better sacrifices than these, better than those sacrifices of bulls and goats. In verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands. See, he's not like our, the high priest on um, the great day of atonement going in, you know, offering blood and sacrifices on behalf of himself and then for the people. No, he didn't have to do that. See, the Lord Jesus, um, in his death, burial, and resurrection, made a way for us to enter into the very throne room of God. He opened the way for us through his life and through his death. And now, because of his shed blood, and this is why his blood is so precious. It's, it's, its power is eternal. Its ministry is eternal. Its effect is eternal. And it says that for Christ is not into, into the holy place made with hands, not like a tabernacle here on earth that's made with hands, right? Which is just a figure of the true, but he's entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence, presence of God for us. So the Lord Jesus presented his blood to the father and said here, you know, not only am I the high priest that uh, brings the sacrifice before you, but I am that sacrifice. The lamb of God that takes away the sin of the people. That's who he is. And in Revelation, it says they were, they, the people, when he returns, they said, oh, they're, they tried to hide themselves from the lamb. Well, why would they be afraid of a lamb? Because he's the lamb that took away the sin of the people. And he was forever that lamb, right? That's who he is. That's who he identifies himself with. Uh, and how we're identified with him is because he is our sacrifice. He went in the presence of the father and said, I have redeemed those whom you've given me to redeem. And his obedience has led the father to exalt him through the heavens. That's how pleased the father is with the Lord Jesus and his work and his ministry. And God, the Holy Spirit is the power by which this was accomplished. And now we have God, the Holy Spirit. He has given us this self same spirit to dwell in us as a earnest, as a deposit so that we can know for sure that we have this eternal inheritance. God, the Holy Spirit, makes us to know that this eternal inheritance is ours and takes um, these doctrines and these teachings and makes them real to us. It's not just something that I'm reading from a book. You know, God, the Holy Spirit makes us to know that, yes, all of this is true. All of this is something that we have and we should be rejoicing always. Again, I say rejoice because of what we have in the Lord Jesus, what's been secured by him through his blood. And now that we have this redemption, right? 
the, the, the sting of death is gone. The fear of death is gone. The fear of God, the, the fear that Adam felt in that garden when, you know, sin was weighing on him and he, he knew the judgment that was due him because of it. That fear is taken away. The Lord Jesus has given us this wonderful gift through his, the sacrifice of himself. And he now has presented us to the Father, not as those who need to be judged, but those who are in him. So now the Father, this love that the Father sees in Christ, that's the love that we have. He sees us now in him. Just meditate on that for a little bit. Verse 25, it says, Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with, with blood of others. So this is saying how that it was a once for all sacrifice, that he doesn't have to continually go in like the high priest with the blood of bulls and goats had to continually go in every year uh, to offer these sacrifices. Um, that's not necessary. Because his sacrifice is it's his blood is effectual and it's eternal because he's eternal and it is a once for all time. In fact, it's a once for eternity. I don't think you can really say for all time because God exists outside of time. God exists in eternity outside of time and his blood will be a constant eternal ministry on our behalf, not just mine, but all those who are placed in Christ. Okay. That's pretty wonderful. So he doesn't have to offer himself like the high priest on earth did, um, as he entered the holy place every year with the blood of these, um, bulls and goats. He doesn't have to do that because his blood is effectual. Verse 26, for, for if he had, if he was like an earthly high priest, for then he must, then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the, it says at the end of the world, but that's at the end of the age, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So, the Lord Jesus picked a certain time that he would manifest himself to mankind and he offered himself at that time and he put away, uh, he paid the debt. He put away the, the, the penalty of sin for all those who are in him. The question I think that everyone should be asking themselves, am I in Christ? Because if not, then you don't have anything to look forward to but judgment. So it's very important to know that you are in Christ. Well, how can you know that? How can anyone know that? Through the, the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, the ministry of his word, your, your reaction, your love, your desire to be in his word, to know it, to fellowship with him. These are ways that God, the Holy Spirit uses 
to testify with our spirit that we are the children of God. So it's very important for us to understand that it was a one-time sacrifice that he made just at the right time, as it says, at the end of the age, he hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So think about that. The sacrifice of himself. God sacrificed himself on behalf of sinners, on behalf of those who hated him. And in this, he showed his love. He manifested his kindness, his mercy. So anybody who rejects that, anybody who doesn't desire that, well, that's the worst kind of sin. That's the worst sin that anyone could commit is to not recognize a God, their creator, who did this on behalf of sinners. To not recognize that is the grossest, ugliest sin that anyone could ever commit. And so that's why hell is never satisfied. And the lake of fire will be the, the judgment that's due to anyone who would not recognize the wonderful blessing of your God, the God of the universe, sacrificing himself. There was no impotence upon the Lord Jesus to sacrifice himself. By sacrificing himself, it did not make him more God. If he didn't sacrifice himself, he wouldn't have been any less God. The only impetus for him to do this was obedience to the Father. And why would the Father have his son do this? Well, because he so loved those whom he placed in his son. It says before the foundation of the world in Ephesians, he chose those to be in Christ. And he knew by choosing them that the consequence of that, he knew that he would have to come and he would have to die and sacrifice himself. And knowing that, and knowing who we are and what we are, in spite of that, knowing who and what we are, he chose to manifest his love and grace and share it with us, those of us who are called, those of us who are saved. And if that does not cause you to rejoice and want to serve him, then I don't know what will. In verse 27, uh, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So this is the rule. This is the irrevocable law of God that it's appointed for everyone, everyone to die once and then the judgment. That's, that's the law of God. So um, the Lord Jesus coming as a man, died as a man, and suffered as a man. And after his death, there was a judgment. And the judgment was that he was righteous. That he was righteous. And the father said, you know, you are a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the, the father raised him from the dead. And that's how we know that he received him 
and received his sacrifice. And now he's calling out a people. Ever since Pentecost, he's calling out a people. And he's saying, hey, I've done this. I've accomplished this on your behalf. The whole Bible is that singular message. Is the love of God in Christ manifested to sinful men. That he has, in spite of our sin, in spite of the judgment that we deserve, he says, I have taken that upon myself. I take your sin and the judgment, and to you I give my righteousness. That's what he's accomplished. Because it is appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. You want to know what's going to happen? People say, I don't know what's going to happen after death. You know, maybe we're going to die like a flower. No. You're going to die and immediately you're going to be judged. And I don't want to be judged. Thankfully, I don't have to be judged. The Lord Jesus took that judgment on my behalf. And now I have before me eternal life and blessing in heaven with him. And I want that for everyone who can hear this message. And the only way that you're going to receive that is through Christ. He says, no one comes unto the Father except through me. He is the way. He is the only way. And through his death, his burial and resurrection, we have life. Those of us who are saved. So, you know, no matter what the world might say, what other Religions might tell you what science might say. The word of God says it's appointed unto men once to die. And after that, the judgment. In verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now we're all going to see that all believers are going to see him when he returns. But this particularly would minister to Hebrew people who were um, promised the land, the seed, and the blessing. And when he returns a second time, he will establish that kingdom. He will come to put down sin and um, judge sin at the end of the tribulation period and he will establish that 1,000 year reign on earth. It says that Christ was offered to bear the sins of many. Doesn't say how many. Certainly not everyone. Because if everybody was, he, if he bore the sins of everyone, then nobody would go to hell in the lake of fire. It wouldn't even need to exist. But it's not for everyone. It's for those who he's calling out. And he has called to be in him, in Christ. But it's many, more than any of us could number. That's what uh, John said. He said he saw in heaven a host that no, no man could number. So the Lord Jesus was successful in what he did and that he bore the sins of many. And unto them, not unto everyone, but unto them, that look for him, shall he appear? I mean, it's just that simple. 
Um, the world is not looking to Jesus. They're not looking for Jesus. They don't care about Jesus. They don't want to talk about Jesus unless they are cursing. That's the only time they talk about it. They have an idea of a Jesus in their mind that is not the Jesus that we're reading about here in Scripture. And they're going to find out that that Jesus that they're thinking of and that they speak about doesn't exist. But the Jesus here in the Bible, he does exist. He lived and he was before these Hebrew people. Many of these people who received this letter to the Hebrews, they were alive and they saw him. And they know, they knew him as Jesus. We know him now as the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And that's what the writer is telling them. That's who he is now. That's who he is in his eternal ministry on our behalf. And he will appear a second time without sin unto salvation. So he's going to come back again. There's going to be a seven-year tribulation period. Uh, the first is going to be the rapture. That's the next prophesied event. The church will be raptured. And there will be no church-age saints here on earth. But there'll be 144,000 Jewish men that are virgins that are going to be sealed and they're going to start ministering and preaching the gospel. And at that time, to preach the gospel is going to be very illegal and it's going to result in the death of anybody who helps them or anybody who's associated with them. And that's going to be a terrible time. The Lord Jesus said that it's going to be a time of tribulation like the world has never seen. And at the end of that seven-year period, the Lord Jesus is going to return. And everyone's going to see him. And he's going to establish his, his kingdom, his 1,000-year reign. He's going to deal with sin. And it's going to be a completely different world earth where uh, the nation israel is going to be the center of the earth and all people will go up to israel to worship and people will be looking for jewish people to say take me up to to worship they will fulfill that uh, ministry to the world that uh, the lord has destined them to have they will be the people of God and they will uh, represent the Lord Jesus in in his reign on earth. Uh, this is going to happen. Where will we be at that time? Well, we'll be in heaven. We'll be in New Jerusalem and we will be enjoying the Lord Jesus there because he is omnipresent. And we'll be able to enjoy him fully. And he has a plan and a purpose and a ministry for us. And what all that entails, I don't know. But I do know that he has a purpose for us. And we'll be fulfilling his purpose in joy and rejoicing without sin. Just like him, it says that he will return a second time without sin unto salvation. Well, we're going to be living 
with him for an eternity without sin. And to me, of all the wonderful things that I've read about our future, our heavenly calling and the blessings that we have in heaven, um, the greatest of these blessings to me, aside from being able to have this intimate fellowship with the Lord Jesus uninterrupted, is going to be the fact that there's no sin. That uh, the struggle, the battle with sin is going to be over with. And I will be holy as he is holy. Uh, I will be like him without sin. And then our salvation will be fully recognized. So wonderful things to meditate on. Wonderful truths that are here in the, the word for us. I pray that um, something of what we've gone over today will minister to you and encourage you and build you up and bring you closer to the Lord Jesus. That is the number one thing that I want for anyone who can hear my voice is that you have a closer relationship, a better understanding, a greater knowledge and appreciation for who the Lord Jesus is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the scripture and how that it teaches and guides us and reveals your truth, reveals your son and all that he's done for us. There's no way that um, I'm able to capture that or to properly um, explain that, but Thank you, Father, for God, the Holy Spirit, and how that he is able to take these things and make them to be a part of us and expand our minds and our souls and our appreciation for who the Lord Jesus is, what he's done. And may we just be brought to the point of praise, Father, that we would just praise the Lord Jesus and praise you for all that you've done for us in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.